Hi, this is Rhea from California. Jed Bartlett is My President is a Chipperish media production and is entirely funded by listeners like you. To support Chipperish and gain access to exclusive content, please visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Hi, and welcome to Jed Bartlett is My President, a podcast about the West Wing and denial. My name is Lonnie Diane Rich, and every week I take an in-depth look at an episode of the West Wing, along with a special guest. And for a little while, we pretend that the worst thing happening in the White House right now is that everyone in power is playing poker and not, you know, running the country or anything. This week's episode is Mr. Willis of Ohio, the sixth episode of season one. And with me to talk about it is my special guest, Elisa Quitney. Elisa was born and raised on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, back when anything above 96th Street was considered unfashionable and a little dangerous. Her newest novel, Cadaver and Queen, will be published by Harlequin Teen in 2017. A former editor at Vertigo DC Comics, she recently founded and edits Liminal Comics, an imprint of Brain Mill press. She has an MFA in fiction from Columbia and has taught writing at Fordham University and McDaniel College. Oh, and she spent the last few years wrangling Neil Gaiman as he channeled Snorri Sturluson and wrote Norse mythology. Welcome, Elisa. Oh, thank you so much. Excited to be here. I'm so glad you're here. So, Elisa, you and I have known each other for years, and it's so fun that I finally wrangled you into one of my podcasts. I'm feeling very proud of myself. I'm also really excited that you've gotten me hooked on the West Wing. (laughs) Oh, no, you haven't watched it before. You just started watching it to do this podcast, right? There was an alternate universe and an (laughs) alternate me in the 90s that I guess was not obsessed with politics. It's hard for me to remember who I was. (laughs) Probably a lot happier. (laughs) Way more relaxed. Yes, definitely. But I, I like the fictional politics. That's why I do this podcast, because Jed Bartlett right now is my actual president. (laughs) <laughs> I, so, I I so hear you when um, I heard that Ivanka Trump was getting a, a an office in the White House. I think I tweeted something like, you know, that watching, you know, old episodes of The West Wing was making reality seem way too far fetched. Exactly. <laughs> yes, reality is definitely, definitely taking a dive off the deep end. So I like staying right here in my nice little bubble. So I have a question for you. All right. If you could take a character from the West Wing and make them into a comic book superhero, who would you choose and what would their superpower be? Oh, gosh. You know, I ah, I I think this is going to come out a little bit strange, but I (laughs) I like strange. (laughs) I feel that Josh Lyman should Mm -hmm. kind of merge with Mandy. The way uh-huh. that, that Dr. Occult merges with Rose Psychic and then they, they become sort of one being. And then together they should be like Wonder Woman and have, you know, extraordinary strength and agility, bullet deflecting bracelets and, you know, maybe be able oh, to wow. laugh through people and, 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 and make them <laughs> tell the truth. Well, that would be really interesting because everybody hates Mandy. <laughs> I, I, I've read that she doesn't last um, past yes. the, the first season, mm-hmm. but I, I kind of feel that she is just anima to his animus. Oh, no, I can definitely I can definitely see that. And they would kind of like balance each other out. That's a really interesting idea. I hadn't really thought about the whole like melding of people. But that's what makes you you because you do all this like superhero comic stuff, which is so cool and so interesting. I love that. 
Well, you know, it's I've done superhero comics, and I've also done a lot of the Vertigo, magical, mm-hmm. occult comics, and and dark fantasy, speculative fiction comics. Mm-hmm. And I find there's this great overlap between you know the the difference between a mutant power and a magical power is 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 it's a fine line. It, I bet it is. Well, I got to say, the West Wing must seem kind of tame to you, then. I actually am loving the the rigorous intelligence of it. Yes. And um, mm-hmm. I, I think the fact that politics is a part of the story and, and, and it, it's not just window dressing for, for soap right. opera, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really enjoying that. It is. It's very cool. All right. Well, let's get talking about it. Mr. Willis of Ohio aired on November 3rd, 1999. It was written by Aaron Sorkin and directed by Christopher Missiano. In the episode teaser, the president quizzes his staff by saying that there are three words in the English language that begin with DW, dwindle, dwarf, and dwell. Actually... There are more than 20, believe it or not, including dweeb, which is defined as a person held in contempt, dwerg, a pseudo-archaic form of dwarf used by Rudyard Kipling, and dwine, which is a dialectal Scottish form meaning to waste or pine away. So I like to pull in these little bits of trivia. We have this this president who is so, like, has all of this ephemera just at the tips of his fingers. And whenever he says something, I presume it to be true. But then I go on Wikipedia and I start studying all of these, all of these episodes and find out that half the time he's not right. <laughs> yeah, I guess that is the one small part in which it resembles reality. I guess, I it guess it is. Sometimes confident. even the president is wrong. <laughs> I think they actually allude to it. There's somewhere in, I think it may be this episode, where yeah. he, he calls out some number and he says, well, it was this and this number of thing and it was rejected or accepted back in whatever year it was. Right. And Leo, the, the chief of staff, says... How did you know that? And how did you remember that? And 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 and, and Jeb says that was right. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's kind of fun. That's part of his charm is that he will go off on all of these things and not necessarily be right. But I take everything he says as pure gospel. If Jed Bartlett says it, I presume it is true. So I got to start. I guess stop being maybe just you know a little a little gullible. Verify, stop being so gullible. You know, you got to verify. <laughs> That's right. You got to verify. All right. So let's break for the synopsis. In this episode of The West Wing, Zoe is threatened not once, but twice. We have extensive mansplaining of budget surpluses and the census. The widower of a congresswoman has to decide how to place his one and only vote on the floor of Congress. And the president finds out about Leo's impending divorce. All right. So this is one of my absolute favorite episodes of The West Wing, which is why I chose this for you, because um, it's early in the run. So not being familiar with the rest of it won't be so so uh, difficult for you. But also, this is just one of my favorite episodes. I love the story with, with Mr. Willis of Ohio. What did you think of the episode? I really loved it, despite, as you pointed out, the, the mansplaining. Mm-hmm. And also as, as a storyteller myself, 
I, I sort of judge people a little bit by how cleverly they've disguised their exposition. And, oh, right. oh gosh, mm -hmm. I really realize I don't understand the census. Could we sit still here <laughs> while you explain it to me? Quick, let's have a sandwich at the same time. It wasn't the most ingenious disguising of exposition I've ever seen. <laughs> well, they do a lot of this throughout the West Wing, and I find it fascinating because we do tend to have these little civics lessons, you know, and often what they call it, uh, the, there's an, a podcast that I absolutely love called the West Wing Weekly, and that is a, a podcast that goes week to week. Every single episode doesn't bounce around the way that we do. Um, so it's a great episode. It's a great podcast to follow to like follow each episode through. And one of the things that they call these little civics lessons um, is Teladonna. <laughs> so they came up with that name for it because her name is Donatella, right? Um, and it is almost always Donna. It's almost always somebody explaining it to Donna. And if not explaining, you know, one of these little civics things to Donna, then it's usually at least a man explaining it to a woman. On occasion, somebody will explain something to Charlie because he is also young, you know, <laughs> but it's almost always Donna. And we have two, not one but two Teladonnas this week. Uh, we have a Teladonna with CJ and the census. Mm -hmm. um, she comes up to Sam, uh, you know, early in this whole process and says... Sam, I read my briefing book last night on the Commerce Bill regarding the census, and there's certain parts of it that I don't quite understand. I can help you out. Which parts? Well, all of it. All of it? Yes. So here we have CJ completely not understanding the census, turning to Sam to explain it to her. Um, and it's 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 kind of fun. I mean, one of the things they do is they, they usually try to couch these in in some sense of some kind of conflict, you know, um, even if it's really, really thin, you know. But it ends up being just this incredibly brilliant musical dialogue from Aaron Sorkin that even when they're talking about things that I'm not interested in, like I'm not terribly interested in the census. I don't know about you, but I wasn't like itching to learn about the census when I dove into this episode. Um, but it's still kind of fun to see them sort of bat the concept around. Here's my question for you, though. After you watched this, did you understand the census more or did this kind of drown out for you? Like all of the, the facts and everything that Sam is throwing at CJ. Did you did you grasp that? Did it extend your understanding of the census? Absolutely. I mean, I, I oh, did understand it better. I think that, you know, once we all became alarmed at gerrymandering, um, I think mm -hmm. we all became a little bit more um, aware of the census and importance right. of, of those things. So it felt... Uh, you know, in one of your earlier uh, podcasts, you were talking about how once upon a time we didn't all know what POTUS meant. Right. And, mm -hmm. and I felt like this sort of feeling like, oh, why is the census important? I just realized it was important, belongs to a time of innocence when we walked around naked in, 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 in Eden before we were aware yes. of gerrymandering and the dangers. Just trusting our government to like do things properly and fairly and not constantly try to screw some portion of the country over, right? You know, it's I, I, I come from New York and, and there's, mm -hmm. uh, if you know Christopher Street and Sheridan Square, there's that funny shaped cigar uh, shop. It's mm -hmm. sort of an odd triangle. And, um, and it, it, it was the result of, you know, somebody was, I think the government was trying to build, you know, buy up a certain amount of land to do something with. And there was this one house that was a holdout. And so they, they did this like peculiar, you know, districting around it. And you end up with this weird shop that's at a very sharp and peculiar angle. So, wow. um, 
But I, I wanted to also say that I, I scribbled down some of the dialogue because even though I feel like in the best of all possible worlds, I like my exposition, you know, cut up into smaller pieces and distributed Sprinkled around the on salad. on top of story, yes. right? You sprinkle it lightly on top of story and then let it run, right? Yes, as, as opposed to, you know, look, mm -hmm. there is, you know, like I'm not a big fan of a big chunk of salmon on top of my salad. I want it, you know, distributed. In little pieces. Yes. Sure. Mm -hmm. So even though the salmon was good, but that said, there were there were two wonderful bits of dialogue. The first bit is when they're talking about the census and mm -hmm. there's this uh, uh, congressman uh, says, uh, I thought we were here to talk about census. We are. The White House just wanted to take this opportunity to point out that you are criminals and despots. Thank you. No problem. But that's not going to stop the president from signing the bill into law. Yes. <laughs> I I just loved how that dipped in and out of subtext and acknowledging mm -hmm. subtext, which I, I thought was wonderful. And then in the mansplaining scene. Um, mm -hmm. Well, which one? The, you got to clarify. Sorry, the one we were talking about. With, with <laughs> right, right, right. With Sam and CJ. Uh -huh. You know, she says, It's hard to admit you don't know something that makes me submissive. What is it exactly you're asking me to do? <laughs> yeah, we had kind of a little like, you know, sexual undertone there. <laughs> it felt like for a moment, Sam was like, okay, I've walked into a situation that I am not really sure about. And I feel that everything with Rob Lowe ever since yes. the 80s, when that sex mm -hmm. tape he did was was exposed, everything right. seems to have a sexual subtext. Which exactly. I, I, <laughs> because it's Rob Lowe. <laughs> it is Rob Lowe. Yes. He is walking sexual subtext. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and really, I feel that it, every administration should have, there should be like a title for that. Sexual, yes. sub, you know, chief deputy of sexual subtext. Exactly. Well, I believe that is, uh, you know, Sam's official title. I'm, I'm not really sure, but I think that's what it is. Um, but I found this whole thing with, with Sam and CJ to be engaging and diverting and fun. And the dialogue is really fun. Um, but he does seem to be like kind of a jerk. What is it exactly you're asking me to do? I'm admitting to you that there are things I do not know. And I'm telling you that I don't think anybody would have any trouble imagining that there are things you do not know. It's so incredibly rude. <laughs> Like, why is it they're so rude to CJ as I watch this, you know, more and more, I see like it actually is, you know, the West Wing is the story of this incredible woman in the center of this like group of men who never and she never gets credit. She never gets like recognition. She doesn't get the respect she deserves. Um, and it's kind of crazy. Like CJ is just amazing. And yet she's in there swinging every single day. She's incredible. Yeah, I, I, I think that the fact that she also has this sort of wonderful, calm wit and command mm -hmm. of herself, as opposed to, you know, I'm sorry, I keep having to go back and forth into, you know, the reality of, you yeah. know, you've got, you know, in her, in her well, there there isn't anyone who's exactly in, in her role. Wait, is she? Mm -hmm. No, she's the, yeah, so she's, is that what the human ulcer does in real life, her, her position? The human ulcer? Sean Spicer. Oh, God. Yes. Yes. The press secretary. Yes. yes. Okay. So, yes. you know, in reality, you have this <laughs> strange, you know, Elmer Fudd-like rage-filled creature. And, mm -hmm. and then, you know, and I, I, I'm looking at her and I'm thinking, wow, you know, it, 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 it feels like she should be canonized. This is what it's like when you have class and style out there with the press, right? Yes. <laughs> 
Yeah, the things that happen in the West Wing now in in the television show um, that I that I watch and that I, I think about, like, you know, the things that are the most disastrous thing that like ever happens to CJ is nothing compared to reality, which is why I live in this wonderful little bubble where Jed Bartlett is my president. <laughs> this is the safe place to be. This is the happy place. <laughs> So we have our second Teledonna, which is an actual Teledonna, uh, where we have Josh explaining the budget surplus to her. Um, and uh, so one of the things that I actually kind of like about this one, despite the fact that it is a mansplaining Teledonna, um, is that the typical civics lesson, like the one with Sam and CJ, doesn't really have much happening underneath that's a story, you know, that's actually carrying this along. But we do have this developing relationship between Josh and Donna, which is on this this unbelievably slow burn. I mean, this is like Mulder and Scully slow burn through all of these seasons, you know. Um, but it's kind of nice to see this relationship developing when he's explaining to her about the surplus and how the surplus works. And she says, We have a $32 billion budget surplus for the first time in three decades. Yes. The Republicans in Congress want to use this money for tax relief, right? Yes. Essentially what they're saying is, we want to give back the money. Yes. Why don't we want to give back because we're Democrats. But it's not the government's money. Sure it is. It's right there in our bank account. That's only because we collected more money than we ended up needing. Isn't it great? I want my money back. Sorry. Which, you know, is a nice, like, I, I like the self-awareness of what it means to be a Democrat, <laughs> that we're going to take the money and we're going to try to use it for social programs. And we're going to try to use it for things that we need to do rather than returning the money to the people we took it from in the first place. In that situation, she is sort of the token Republican because she's stating the, the you know, the Republican She's making that argument, yes, right. Mm -hmm. For individual freedom and autonomy. And mm -hmm. um, and I think she does it really well. The you know, and 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 the way she flips it on him is is lovely. Yeah, no, I love that moment at the end when she comes in with his sandwich order um, and he says, uh, uh, Donna, Donna. Yes. How much were the sandwiches? Twelve ninety five. I gave you twenty. Yes. As it turns out, you actually gave me more money than I needed to buy what you asked for. However, knowing you, as I do, I'm afraid I can't trust you to spend the change wisely. I've decided to invest it for you. That was nice. That was a little parable. I want my money back. <laughs> <laughs> he absolutely loves that she turned that around on him. He adores that, and you can see that in his reaction. So one of the things that I really like about this particular Teladonna is that we're not just having the civics lesson of what happens with the budget surplus. There's actually some movement going on underneath it in the relationship between these two people, and I absolutely adore it. Yeah, I mean, the other thing I liked about that and what makes for a, 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 a more dynamic sort of... Um, dynamic is 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 that both of them are making valid points you know in the in the previous mm -hmm. uh scene with with sam and cj you know she needs information and he's providing it and he's giving it to her right and, mm -hmm. and in this they are both quickly taking up different positions and mm -hmm. and, and arguing for them so yeah which i like because it makes donna much more active in the teledonna you know, it's not just that he's explaining it to her, but she's actively batting these ideas back at him and arguing with him. And that's one of the things that I really like about The West Wing is that it will take the time. I mean, it's it's a very liberal show. And I think everybody pretty much knows where the general ethos of The West Wing lands on the political spectrum. It's, it's left of center, definitely. Um, but they do take the time to explain 
a lot of these issues from the other side. And this is one of those arguments where while I land on the on the left side, I think I'm kind of with Josh on this, you know, like if I've already given the government the money, let them put it towards something that that is actually going to do some good and that's going to, you know, um, help the programs that I would support anyway, you know, like like Medicaid and 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 the other things that Social Security, that kind of stuff, you know. Um, but I can see Donna's argument and I think it's a good argument. And I think that there is definitely a, a, a very legitimate place for a conservative viewpoint on those kinds of personal freedoms. This is my money. I gave it to you. You didn't spend it all. So give it back. You know, and I think that they both have really good points. And I like the fact that they're both making valid points. And we're not saying that one of them is absolutely wrong. If anything, I think the way that it's presented, the way that Josh says, well, we're Democrats, we keep the money. Yeah, Um, that's not as compelling an argument, I think, as Donna's argument. And especially when she brings the sandwich to him and kind of flips that around on him. It's really nicely done. Absolutely. And, you know, there's a a variant of that kind of, you know, let's give the other side the other argument Mm -hmm. in how Toby deals with Mr. Willis of Ohio. And, you know, it's that same lovely, unexpected thing of lifting up out of your position and out of your beliefs to really understand the other side and, and, and where their argument may have validity. Right. Because there is this difference. And this is one of the things we see that's so beautiful in this particular storyline with Mr. Willis of Ohio, that Toby is in there as a political operative and he is there working the politics of the situation. And the other guys who are on the committee with Mr. Willis are also working the politics of the situation. Um, And while Toby generally is a guy who is absolutely about believing very deeply and very earnestly in the rightness of the choices that he's making and the things that he's doing while he's there he's absolutely playing that situation to to hit his objective of winning rather than necessarily being right about it and i think that that's one of the really nice little twists that we get here at the end of the story but i love this we have this guy mr willis of ohio who comes in um as a husband whose wife was a congresswoman and she had died and so he is filling her seat temporarily until they have an election or whatever it is that they do. Um, And uh, because in in the world of the West Wing, apparently what they do is slightly different from what we actually do in our real (laughs) world. And I'll hit hit on that in just a second. Um, But he's there temporarily and he's he's in this position where he's actually going to be placing a vote. And he stands in contrast to these, you know, these weathered, you know, political operatives who are playing the politics game. And he's actually there to decide what he thinks is right and to do what he thinks is right. And I love that about this, this part of the story. Well, he comes in that, you know, time honored tradition of the the innocent, you know, he, yes. he mm-hmm. presents himself as someone who is not as intelligent as um, you know, as his as his uh, dead wife, and, right. and doesn't mm-hmm. have this nuanced grasp. But what we understand is the nuanced grasp is actually underhanded business, foilish stick, yes. as, as 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 my grandmother used to say in Yiddish. And, <laughs> and so there's this, you know, hint of Mr. Smith goes to Washington in that, you mm-hmm. know, I'm a yes. simple man with simple values. He teaches, you know, civics to to eighth grade yes. students, and what he is grasping is the you know holding on to the principle behind the nuance even though what he's saying is that Mm -hmm. he doesn't grasp the nuance 
Yeah, but he does. He's every bit as smart as anybody else in that room. He just has something that they don't have, which is humility. As much as I love the characters in the West Wing, they're not the most humble bunch of people. And I think that that's actually okay. I think that that false modesty is is not necessarily a virtue. And these people are absolutely exceptional. And understanding their exceptionalism is something that allows them to do the incredible things that they do on a daily basis. So that's okay. But this guy comes in with this excess of humility and is actually, you know, as smart. He understands exactly what Toby is doing. He understands what's going on. He's just trying to make the right decision, which I really, really love. Um, But one of the things that I found interesting, and of course, I did my, you know, my brief Wikipedia, you know, research trying to figure out how all this works, is that actually what happens when um, a congressperson dies is that they have to have an election. Um, you cannot, nobody gets appointed, no, no husband or wife steps in. Um, if a senator dies, the governor can appoint somebody and has, and in the past, we've seen that happen. Um, there was a situation where there was an, an election and a Missouri, um, a former Missouri governor, Mel Carnahan, was running for a Senate seat and he died like a couple of weeks before the election. Mm. And so he ended up as a dead person winning the election. So which actually tells you quite a lot. And and the governor at the at the time placed uh, Mel Carnahan's wife Jean into the Senate seat, and she held that for a while. Um, so this thing is not necessarily unprecedented, but it doesn't happen with Congress. Um, and it's funny because we actually revisit that storyline in season four of The West Wing, uh, much later on, where there's actually a a fictional character who's running for um, for I think it is a Congress seat who dies and then wins the election so so there's consequences from that 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 show up after that um wait i need to ask that was really has anyone done an episode where people are trying to hide the fact that the corpse is actually you know a corpse and people like no look he's just very sleepy weekend at bernie's yes (laughs) they're doing a weekend at bernie's i'm not sure that that would be like a west wing thing but i really would love to see that i really (laughs) would love to see that story maybe we're gonna have to work together and write that screenplay (laughs) and sell that because that would be really really fun can we make it a romance Um, Oh, I think you and me. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. We can do that. Absolutely. We can do that. Um, So one of the things I I love in this part is, is Toby working every angle and he, he uses the constitution to argue about the headcount being arcane, which is technically maybe not quite the word for it. I think he means like archaic or, you know, like out, out of date or whatever. Um, But, uh, but I, I, when he uses this three fifths, you know, argument and turns to Mr. Willis, knowing that Mr. Willis, having taught eighth grade social studies, is going to absolutely know what was in, you know, the Constitution, what was missing from Mandy's recitation. Um, I thought that was a really kind of kind of interesting turn. And you can see that Toby is is manipulating him. Um, or is absolutely trying to manipulate him, but he doesn't have to manipulate him. We have Mr. Willis who says, I, I thought, thought you made a very was... strong argument. Well, thank you. Uh, <laughs> I'm smiling because, well, around here, the merits of a particular argument generally take a backseat to political tactics. I would imagine. Yeah. It worked on me. I was taking advantage of you, sir. I know. There's some things I did not mention. First of all, it is partisan. Second of all, I'm not wild about the precedent. 
You mean... What's to stop us from saying we don't need elections? We'll just use polling data. 1,150 people with a sampling error of plus or minus three will decide who runs the country. One of the things that I, I really love about this interaction is we have Mr. Willis coming in and, and they call him congressman. And he's like, I'm not a congressman. Don't call me a congressman. Toby calls this man, sir, all the way through. And, um, and Mr. Willis says, call me Joe, right? And the other guys call him Joe. And Toby never once calls him anything but sir or congressman. And I love that level of respect. And it's one of those things that you could sort of miss. You could easily miss that that beat, you know, within all of this dialogue. But I was specifically looking at it. And I, I love the incredible amount of respect that Toby shows this guy because this guy deserves it. He's incredibly humble. And I think he's a little too humble when he says, I don't know what my wife was doing with a dummy like me. Um, that to me is just a, a bridge too far. <laughs> like this man is no dummy, you know? Um, but he's, he's so honest and good and he does feel somewhat out of place, you know? in this crowd it, among these people. And, and one of the things that, that we talk about that we love so much about the West Wing um, is that everybody there is so earnest and they really do mean to do well and to do the right thing. But when you put somebody like Mr. Willis up against them, he makes them all look like criminals and despots, you know? Yes. And, you know, and I love, I love the closing of that arc that he kind of, in the end, I think Toby does call him congressman at the end mm -hmm. and, and really does. Yes. He sort of, he has claimed that mantle in, and he doesn't, mm -hmm. he doesn't, he doesn't demur at the end. So he goes to have his one vote and then Toby watches him on the monitor. Oh. And I, I, I really teared up. I did too. That's my favorite part of this whole episode where, and we don't see it, but we hear it. And, and you know that this man who has been teaching social studies to eighth grade students, which is one of the most unsung heroic acts that people make, oh, yeah. you know, to teach this kind of important stuff Except to young they children. They don't is, do that is, anymore. I just want to, maybe they did yeah. 15 years ago, but I don't think they even <laughs> teach this stuff. Um, I, I do want to go back and say one thing about the use of the term arcane. Oh, yeah. Coming from mm -hmm. horror comics. You know, oh, sure, right? Arcane has this whole meaning of occult and and, and Of mystical and, and occult, right? And so I kept thinking... It seemed like the wrong word to me. Well, I kept thinking, like, you know, again, like, we have the episode mm -hmm. that, that we'll have to write where they, they try to conceal that it's a corpse. I expected, like, <laughs> let us read this arcane passage from the Constitution. And I figured they would, at that point, summon a demon. And when we read it up, right, exactly. <laughs> well, you know what? I will say that the, the U.S. Constitution has probably summoned more than one demon in its oh, day. So you know, if, you, if you invoke the words in a group of three within the seal on the carpet, that's it, man. Belial's going to come. It's just, it's just all over, man. Yeah, no, that's, that's some bad news. It actually explain a lot of things. But anyway, going back into our little bubble, um, what did you think of this whole story with the president and his daughter, Zoe? This is is actually one of the the real like emotionally laden conflict ridden stories it's actually a genuine story within this episode what did you think about that well I thought it was really moving and it was mm -hmm. it was interesting to to see um Elizabeth Moss the actress 
you know, who I remembered right. from Mad Men. And so I kept, I felt yeah. as though I'd gone back in time and now I'm seeing her as, you know, um, you know, a, a very young woman. And that, yeah. that was sort of trippy in and of itself. Um, <laughs> and I felt the realness of it. And it reminded me, I, again, I, I don't mean to keep in the real world, but I was thinking how much <laughs> Obama's daughters you know, would have yeah. been living that reality of, Oh, yeah. I cannot even imagine. I mean, his daughters were much younger, but like going out to a bar, you know, where she's like, first of all, completely famous. Everybody knows how old she is, how she got in in the first place is one thing. Um, she's 19 years old. She goes up to the bar. She's buying drinks. Like, how is this? How does this work? You know, if she was if she was, you know, somebody who wasn't famous and had a fake ID, I could see that working. But she is literally one of the most famous people you know, in the world, you know, and, and that she wasn't completely surrounded by Secret Service, you know, on her every minute was also a little bit unbelievable. Um, but it was fun. You know, they all go out to this bar together. They're all drinking and having a good time. There's this weird stuff with Mallory and Sam, um, this weird flirtation going on with that. And, you know, just kind of let that wait, go because it doesn't really come no, to no. anything. I, I need to go back and say something oh, yes. really weird about that. So, yeah, I, I'm watching one episode and, you know, Sam says this whole thing about, you know, I've had a really bad day and I accidentally slept with a call girl. Right, and right, Mal right. In the pilot. Yes. She's looking at him as though she hates him. And her yes. hair has been like pulled into some really tight prim. It looks like, you know, I would never think of having sex because look how tight my right. hair is. <laughs> now I see her and she's got loose curls. And, uh -huh. and, um, and, and she asked something like, is Sam coming along? And I think it's Josh who says, oh, now he's had a hard time. Don't just call him for a booty call. And I'm thinking, did I miss a bunch of episodes? An evolution in Mallory? No, no, you didn't. Um, Mallory and Sam are this very weird thing that they sort of rise up every now and again, you know, in a couple like they, we completely ignore it for episodes and then they sort of rise up and they bob their head up above the surface. And then it's, it's you know, I don't know, it's it's a very, very weird relationship and not particularly, I think, well drawn um throughout the but yeah but there's there is this sense of this flirtation between Mallory and Sam that they're sort of sort of resurrecting a little bit not unlike Bernie <laughs> from Weekend of Bernie oh the undead yes. attraction yes <laughs> so we've got this uh you know this whole story with she's out at the bar and she gets accosted by these guys and these guys who are just so flatly evil you know i mean the things that they're saying they're horrible horrible racist things to charlie um they they say a word for gay people that i will not repeat that i think probably would not make it on the air right now but is it apparently was acceptable back then um but a really really derogatory word that i don't particularly care for um and then they block zoe from being able to go back with her friends i've never seen like it's it's they're not real it's it was the most unbelievable bar fight i think i've ever seen how did you respond to those guys did you believe them at all did they seem real to you well it it reminded me um i i i don't remember exactly what was happening i think i was watching 21 jump street or something and uh <laughs> yes i think that was it. i was watching some old episode with my daughter mm -hmm. and i realized that you know in tv there's been this sort of evolution from like all right, we've got, you know, 
we've got some you know hispanic people some people of color they are going to be the pump the pimps and the thieves okay no right we can't do that they are going to be utterly utterly you know there's only going to be one or two so you know you have to be utterly virtuous and then yes you know and then it, it eventually people realize that if you have enough characters of all different uh you know uh, you know a diverse array of characters then people do not have to just fit into this this little exaggerated stereotype this really flat bad guy box yes. you know i mean it's just like they're they could be jerks you know and they could be like stepping over a line but these guys are so far over the line of just dreadful just terrible human beings um and i mean i know that people like that like maybe do exist but it just seemed like it was so exaggerated and so far out there. Although it was really fun to see, uh, you know, to see they call in the Secret Service and the Secret Service slams them against the bar. And one of the guys was played by Eric Balfour, who uh, a lot of people know from a lot of different things. But he's always Jesse from the the pilot of Buffy the Vampire Slayer for me. Yes, he's I, always I, that I guy. would be where I recognize him from. That's where it is. Yeah. The thing about that was, yes, I felt... I mean, it felt like they were, you know, we are here to be the bad guys. We are, we are, you yes. know, and we're going to be, you know, very bad. How bad? We're going to, we're, and we're going to, you know, we're going to both stand all around you blocking you, but we're not going to actually touch you in, in an inappropriate way. We're just going to, and I, I felt about this, that, you know, as, as we all say as storytellers, truth does not need to justify itself. Fiction, mm-hmm. you know, actually does. And so, yes, there are definitely people this stupid in bars. Um, mm-hmm. but, but, you know, for the sake of this, I would have loved it if, um, Zoe could have been a little more nuanced. For example, if she had flirted a little with them and then realized that they were, you know, drunk and missing cues and, you know, if mm-hmm. there'd been a little more time to, to develop that. And then, you know, although when I watched the scene, I was really enjoying it. I think it's Josh who, who, you know, picks up her panic button and press. Right. I, I'm mm-hmm. thinking that, you know, as I look at it and I, I think over, the one thing I, I do feel is the women don't have as much agency. Are you telling me? They don't. So, you know, so you've got two other women there, right? You've got CJ mm-hmm. and, and you've got um, and Mallory. Mallory. And, you know, as, as a woman in a bar, you'd have this little bit of awareness of, you know, well, actually, you know, it would often be a woman who might think, hey, you know, she's been there a while. Let me just see if she's okay. And, yeah. and you know, so this this still has the men being very protective. and It does. And sure, she takes out her panic button because she said it ruins the lining of her outfit. But her outfit is not, she's not wearing like a red dress. You know, I mean, she's wearing a pair of jeans and like a jacket or whatever, you know. So she goes up to the bar. And the thing that I would have loved to have seen is these guys, you know, like coming after her. Um, and then, you know, Charlie and because one of the, the things that we hit later on is, is Sam and Josh arguing over which guys they could have taken. And Charlie says, you couldn't have taken any of those guys. It doesn't matter, you know, um, and that being the reality of it. But I would have liked Zoe to hit her own panic button for Zoe yes. to take care of herself in that circumstance. But we deliberately take away her one, you know, mode of power, you know, of protecting herself and hand it over to these guys 
you know, and they are the ones who come to her rescue and she's essentially damseled, and, you know, in this episode. Yes, and, and I mean, even if it was for the arc, if we want Zoe, mm-hmm. perhaps, you know, she says it's, you know, I'd like my, my ass to look, you know, better than it went right. with that thing mm-hmm. hanging off of it. But if, if what she wants is autonomy and this feeling of not being, then it could have been, and I could argue should have been one of the other women right. responding first and mm-hmm. saying, you know what, she's 19, you know, let me go and just take a look. Because women are more sensitive about how vulnerable women are in situations like that. I mean, I think that we are just generally more attuned to it, you yeah. know. Um, so it would have been really nice to see that. Then after this whole brouhaha, yeah. right, we have this scene with her and her dad. And President Bartlett says, Did you do anything at all to provoke these guys? Like what? Were you flirting with them? Dad. Zoe, you flirt with guys. Yes, Dad, I am 19 years old. I was not flirting with these guys. And even if I was, it certainly wasn't justification for their behavior. First of all, this is the thing that makes me nuts. This is the question that I hate more than anything. When something happens to a woman... You know, she's attacked, you know, something happens. And the first question is, what did you do to deserve it? You know, there's a, there is a, a bookend to that. I feel like there's a lot of interesting mm-hmm. bookends in this. And that's when, yes, there are. Well, mm-hmm. that's when he turns to Leo. And now Leo has mm-hmm. just said, you know, I, I didn't want to tell you because I felt it would blame me. But, you know, my wife has left me. And, right. and Jeff's mm-hmm. first response is, you're the man fix it, make it right. Right. Which of course Mm -hmm. takes away the part where she's actually made a decision and left him. Where she, yeah, where Jenny, you know, Leo's wife has any autonomy or agency in that decision at all. Yes. And the the thing that appears to be happening there, and actually I thought it was quite psychologically advanced of the, you know, of of, of Sorkin in in his writing. Mm -hmm. I don't know if he was aware he was doing this, but he shows a character Mm-hmm. you know, makes women a little bit into Madonnas and whores. The, the, yeah. the Madonna, you know, clearly your wife right. wouldn't have left you because of any agency on her own part. It's really because you've screwed up and you need to make it right. Because right. she is, you know, mm-hmm. this saintly creature, clearly. and Because everything is under the man's control. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and and I feel like that is a little bit of a, a bookend to, to his ridiculous response to his daughter. But while... He does apologize to Leo and realizes that he was being an ass. He he doesn't Mm -hmm. come to the same realization about his daughter. No, but what I love, though, is that she turns that around on him right away and slams it back at him. You know, yes, I was not flirting with these guys, but even if I was, it wouldn't justify their behavior. And I love that she, at that age, you know, obviously raised by this guy, you know, who love him as much as I do, this is not his best side, you know, Um, that she knows that this was not her fault, that she didn't do anything wrong. Um, And when they're having that discussion, I love the fact that she does not for a moment accept that as reality she pushes back against it firmly and effectively and i really love when she does that and then we have this you know this whole nightmare scenario that the president lays out for zoe what would happen if she got kidnapped you're tied to a chair in a cargo shack somewhere in the middle of uganda and i am told that i have 72 hours 
to get Israel to free 460 terrorist prisoners. So I'm on the phone pleading with Ben Yabin, and he's saying, I'm sorry, Mr. President, but Israel simply does not negotiate with terrorists, period. It's the only way we can survive. So now we got a new problem because this country no longer has a commander-in-chief. It has a father who's out of his mind because his little girl is in a shack somewhere in Uganda with a gun to her head. Do you get it? He's making a really good point about her having necessary security, that her security has to be tight, that it has to be extensive um, because there's just too much at stake. Um, So even though he starts this out you know, really poorly with the way that he addresses this with her. Um, In the end, he delivers this this impassioned speech. And I find it every time I watch it to be really moving. Did you did you have that response? I I found it really moving. I have to say that I, you know, there are places where you understand that this is a villanelle. And so the rhyming couplet has to come at the end. And the speed with which she, you know, completely uh, relented and, and, and completely gave over felt the mm-hmm. most artificial part of it to me because, you know, I would think she might have a few more defenses than that. But yes, right. I, mean, I felt it was moving and that Elizabeth Moss is acting also. You know, she she registers a lot and she, you know, mm-hmm. she does a very active listening that felt within the constraints of, I felt like the capitulation, like, oh, dad, you're right, you know, might have been a little fast. But, you know, between the two of them, they sold it to me. Yeah, they're both tremendous actors. And they really did a fantastic job with that. Um, But I, I love I love that whole thing. And it always it always sits with me so strongly, you know, this this one moment where he tells that story um, to her and he lays out this whole scenario. Uh, and Martin Sheen delivers that so powerfully and so beautifully that it always it always gets me, even in this moment where I'm just so mad at him for what he just said to her. He wins me over because he's, he's so powerful and his ability to deliver that oratory is incredible. Yeah, and it felt real. And, and throughout it, I just found myself thinking about, you know, um, you know, Obama's daughters and how that must have mm-hmm. been. I, I, sometimes I would see, you know, Jeb morph into Barack Obama because I imagined mm-hmm. I, it felt very viscerally um, true to me. Yeah, no, absolutely. It does. One of the other things that I loved about this episode is that we have these bookends, right? We open in the poker game and then we have the woman who comes on to the the White House lawn looking to attack Zoe, which we find out later. Um, So we open with this poker game. They're all talking. They're all, you know, um, we've got this character moments. Um, We have some some fun with the president and his trivia. And of course, Toby lands all of the punctuation marks. So Toby is, of course, our, our real smart guy. And then at the end of the episode, we come back and we close with everybody playing poker again but Toby is watching the roll call Toby is watching for Mr. Willis of Ohio and I love that particular device you know where you've got these bookends that sort of reflect on each other and in both of them Toby stands out but for different reasons so I really like that I thought that was a nice element to the episode yeah and it's it's the idea of politics I guess as a poker mm-hmm. game in which there is bluffing and 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 all kinds of you know, psychological maneuvering and manipulation. But in the end, this is a a sort of 
strange family. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. I mean, it's one of these workplace families that I love these stories too. these communities of people, found family, people who are united by a particular passion, especially a passion for the work. Um, I I love those kinds of stories. And it's one of my favorite things about the West Wing. (laughs) No, absolutely. Um, But I, I felt that the writing it sucked me in and, mm-hmm. and it's kind of strange to be doing this in this time warp, yeah. but I know that, you know, after we finish this, I'm going to go, you know, tonight and um, watch episode seven. Oh, absolutely. Maybe eight as well. You should definitely, I, I have been, I have been binging this. I've been binging it with my daughters. We've been having wonderful conversations, not entirely unlike the conversations that I get to have here every week with, with people who will come and hang out with me to talk about the West Wing. And it is absolutely spawning some, some really great discussion. And I think that that's a valuable discussion to be having right now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I, I thank you so much for, for getting me hooked on this because it is a very good escape from reality. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad I was able to bring you over into my uh, my nice little um, sleeping bag of denial. So that's going to do it for this week's episode of Jed Bartlett is My President. Sadly, it is time to put away our bag of chocolate denial, but I hope this little break has given you the downtime you need to replenish your strength and stand up and continue to fight for what's right. As Theodore Parker said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. So go out there and get to bending. Thank you, Elisa Quitney, for hanging out with me this week. Can you tell the fine folks where they can find you? Oh, um, yes. I, I'm, I'm on Twitter at, um, what am I? At a Quitney dot com mm-hmm. and um and i'm also on facebook and on, i've got a website uh you can barely avoid me i will put links in the show notes to everything so that everybody can find you out there and read your books which by the way are fantastic so people should be reading everything that you've ever written and i'm very very excited for cadaver queen oh thank you so much and of course now cadaver politician Oh, yes. No, that's going to be really nice. Weekend at Bernie's. We're absolutely going to put that together. I'll be back next week with Liz Lutz, my best friend from high school, who is currently a high school English teacher and thus one of the big heroes of our modern age. And our thoughts on episode eight of season two, Shibboleth, in which the staff prepares to celebrate Thanksgiving and CJ must pick a turkey to pardon. Until then, here's a word from your temporary congressman, Mr. Willis of Ohio. I think the problems that we're going to face in the new century are far beyond the wisdom of Solomon, let alone me. But I think the right place to start is to say, fair is fair. This is who we are. These are our numbers. Jed Bartlett is My President is a Chipperish Media production. To get exclusive Chipperish content and access to a community of amazing people, go to patreon.com slash chipperish. All clips in this podcast were used under the fair use exemption for criticism and commentary of the U.S. Copyrights Act. <laughs> <laughs>